You're listening to the IR Podcast. We are your host, Brian Betcher. And I am Michael Goff. This podcast is also brought to you by LogMD, the log and malicious discovery tool for Windows-based systems for IT, InfoSec, IR, and forensics professionals. It helps you assess your audit log settings against several industry standards, including the Windows Logging Cheat Sheet, so you can improve your logging to collect all the right things. LogMD can also be used to hunt for targeted, malicious, and interesting artifacts such as large registry keys, auto runs, WMI persistence, malicious PowerShell execution, and targeted log events that can then be collected by your log management solution. LogMD provides more details and easy-to-read reports than your EDR solutions can provide. We offer free, professional, and consulting licenses. Discover it. Discover LogMD today at log-md.com. We've got a great, great episode today. And I say two greats because we have two great guests, Tyler Hudak and Martin Bro. Welcome, guys, to the show. Thank you, sir. Thank you. All right. Do I introduce you guys again? I think you've both been on before, right? So uh, Tyler, uh, practice lead incident response at Trusted Sec. Tell us a little bit about yourself. What was Tyler? Were you uh, you were a previous gig the first time you were on, right? So this you're on. A- yeah, yeah. This is the first time that I've been on uh, since I've, I've been at Trusted Sec. I've been at Trusted Sec for about oh wow, a little over two years now. I think you know I've, I've been in the information security industry for a little over twenty years. A lot of it doing incident response, malware analysis, forensics, and uh, kind of got lucky and um, doing something that I love now and leading a really awesome team uh, doing it. Damn. Compete with that, Martin. <laughs> he too has switched jobs since the last time he was on. <laughs> yeah, actually, I have. <laughs> Brian's the only one with the same job. All three of us have switched jobs since we started this podcast. <laughs> well, you know, switch positions. The way that works. Yeah, but, you know, not companies yet. Oh, uh, Martin? Yeah. Go. Awesome. So I, uh, I currently work for Acronis as the cybersecurity expert. Basically, I work on research and development. So we're, you know, analyzing malware, but on top of that, researching different events going on globally and working with companies to identify, you know, better means of kind of thwarting these attacks in different styles and and kind of developing tools to help. Your research feeds into the EDR product? Research goes into our, not EDR yet, but Acronis Cyber Protect is kind of a product that our flagship security product that we're kind of launching uh, globally right now. Um, which does you know ransomware protection, malware protection, but it in- integrates with our backup system really well. So, which is what Acronis is known for. Cool, awesome. Okay, show summary. You want to sponsor the podcast or just one show? We're we're looking for sponsors. Always looking for sponsors. We love sponsors. We'll have some newsworthy items and uh, some site worthy items and some tool worthy items that we'll share. Uh, we'll also go over malware of the month and our topic of the day: fileless malware. We don't really think so. Okay, let's talk about some upcoming training. Well, Sandsdefer, I'll be presenting at the Sandsdefer Summit on July 17th and 18th. So when they get around to rolling that prezo out, take a take a gander at it. I'm going to talk about the uh, bad actors and red teams are coming after your running processes. And I'm mentioning that because it definitely is in line with our topic today. Also, uh, 
article in eForensics magazine on Arthur. Yeah, covered in episode 11. We talked about Arthur with uh, Olaf Hartung, one of the co-creators. So now um, I wrote an article for eForensics magazine. They published it as the open source free tools edition. So you can go to their website, eForensics magazine. I think it's eForensicsMag.com and register to download the free edition. Take a read. There's a whole bunch of other tools on there. And kudos to them. They're releasing it for free, being its open source tools. Also, we got Besides Cleveland coming up. Tyler, we'll take that one. Yeah, so um, you know, besides Cleveland was obviously uh, the, the the conference itself was canceled uh, due to COVID and and, and all of that, um, but uh, they decided to keep the the training uh, going, um, and so with that. Um, on June nineteenth, which is I guess you know the Friday after we're recording this, um, I'll be doing a what I'm calling tactical uh, Windows forensics. It's a different style of training course. It's it's a one day thing where it's just completely all labs. I'm basically just giving everybody a uh, disk image as well as you know output from uh, the Cape uh, Live Response tool and a couple other things, and then we're just going to go through each individual um, kind of section of what you would do in forensics. We're going to focus on you know. One section being event logs. Suppose I have to mention LogMD in that, so I will. Um, we'll, we'll do some registry analysis, uh, file system analysis, and things like that. Just to kind of break up, you know, how forensics would work. Chances are, uh, I'm guessing that whoever's uh, listening to this is this will probably be out after uh, registration is closed. But I'm probably going to release either release this or make it available again at some point. So uh, you know, I would say watch out for that. Cool. And you mentioned uh, you're going to be talking and using CAPE. Uh, just FYI, we are going to be creating CAPE modules for LogMD Free, Pro, and Premium. Oh. Uh, Talked to Eric about it, and he's like, yep, put them all in there, and we'll put them on the site, and people download them. So, yeah, CAPE, CAPE coming to you. If those who don't know about CAPE, I guess we'll have another podcast about that in the future <laughs> once we get it all rolled out, and we'll explain to you what CAPE is and, and what its purpose is. That's awesome. Maybe we'll have Tyler on again to talk about how he uses CAPE. <laughs> for sure get eric or mari or somebody on and last we've got a ncc group webinar sure it's free to all it'll be july 22nd you can get more information when it's posted i think around the 20th of june usually about a month beforehand they'll publish it at news newsroom.nccgroup.com slash events i will be talking about preparing for an incident so please come take a listen it's free uh, similar podcast or similar podcast similar presentation that i just did last week for source boston but just a little longer be about an hour and anyone looking for a job yeah if you want to work with me we are hiring i will publish a link to the job description but if you are interested in working in the consulting area and want to do incident response and work with uh, cool folks i love my team and more importantly work with me and learn from me because i really want to retire and die someday and, and turn it over to somebody else so you know i want to create some more minions uh, please uh, reach out to me i'll publish the link to the description but if you are strong at aws gcp google cloud or azure as well as all things incident response uh, let me know i'd love to talk to you about the opportunity next topic newsworthy okay our first newsworthy item sitelance blocks logmd premium running a process check why is that well i was doing an investigation on a on a box and i ran logmd and silence popped up and said yeah denied and so i reached out to them opened a ticket and asked them what they needed from us to trust us and they said yeah we're not going to do that that's not how we work you have to go into the 
console and and whitelist the product to uh, run in your environment. And I'm like, oh, ain't that awesome? But that did bring up a good point, which is why I put it in here. That this is something I know Brian and I have run into that we, uh, and, and matter of fact, on this gig was one of them, where uh, there was an AV agent running as well as this silence running. So they contended with one another, which actually caused a lot of confusion amongst the team of whether or not the th- the event got handled or not. So if you are running multiple security tools and you have antivirus or an EDR, you really need to uh, look at each one of them and say, I trust you both, both directions. And then I would really, if you're looking uh, and running SSCM in your environment, boy, will that fill up your AV logs. So be sure to trust and exclude SSCM. So there are things you should definitely take a look at in your configurations for ADR AV so it doesn't uh, eat up all your resources and contend with things. And that would include if you're a Sysmon user, be sure to exclude that from your AVs and EDR. So this is just another case of where security tool blocks a security tool. Yep. No doubt that is a common issue. Next article comes from ZDNet titled Windows Malware Opens RDP Ports on PCs for Future Remote Access. Ooh, ah. Well, first thing, if you're running RDP on the internet, that's a bad thing. So the fact that malware is now looking to do this is kind of a a warning here. We've talked about this (laughs) how many times in a podcast saying RDP on the internet. Um, So now you've got malware looking to open up the hole. So now you really have to pay attention to what they're doing here. So yeah, RDP, so type 10 logins, uh, might want to check out what's going on in your environment, baseline those and pay attention to them and see if there's any rules specifically doing an open uh, scenario or ad. There are event IDs that will allow and alert you to this. Take a look at them and alert on them, put them in your SIM. And, of course, you can always see this stuff in LogMD when you collect it. But, yeah, this would be bad if Mauer did this to you. And this probably gets by some analysts. I know I've seen this. Martin, Tyler, have you seen this occurring where they open RDP? I haven't seen it where they specifically open RDP. And so just just to clarify, when you're saying that the malware is opening up RDP, um, it's opening up within the Windows firewall. It's not like, you know, the attackers aren't actually, like, hacking into the corporate firewall or something like that and opening it up through that. Correct. Is that correct? Correct. Like, yeah. They're essentially opening port like 3389. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, Windows firewall. Um, that open. Important point. Yeah, I, I I personally haven't seen this specifically. Um, although you know, it I, I have seen you know malware obviously open up ports and processes in the Windows firewall. So it, it doesn't surprise me. Um, looking through the article, why they're doing it. Honestly, you know, my gut feeling is that you know it's kind of like what the article says. It's either it's going to be to either. Um, so that they can get back in easily, so they don't have to, you know, set up their own communications, you know, hide within, you know, the stuff that's going on probably anyways, um, or just to resell it. I mean, there's how many different RDP markets on the dark net that you can go and buy RDP systems. This They're, they're kind of creating their own money uh, for this. Yep, agreed. Uh, this is a little bit easier than selling uh, zombies that malware creates that uses other ports, proprietary ports. This one is, uh, you know, typically companies have 3389 open in their firewall so you just open it on each host and it gets through so it might be a good idea to scan for port 3389 if you're not already right and uh, there are uh, other companies that you know you can uh, check their services some of them for free you know Shodan can do a couple of scans your environment it's not really a scan it's whatever's in their database it's a query so yeah uh, it's a big deal and uh, if you do have RDP open, of course, you want to keep tabs on it and see what is open, right? And uh, if you allow it in your environment, cut it off at the firewall. 
You'll probably find it's open, especially for those Windows environments that use RDP pretty openly, like the last gig that had to do with silence, they used it. So the idea here would be look at the firewall rule generations and as the, is there being a new rule added or a change? And this is something that generally is not going to change in your environment. So if you start seeing a bunch of firewall rule changes happening, then that would definitely be something you want to look for and alert on. And who in your environment is allowed to RDP to what workstation, right? If Martin's workstation starts RDPing to Tyler's and me and Brian, that's a bad thing. It should be coming from the help desk guy helping you, right? Or the server to the servers. Right. So the direction and, and target sources is kind of important here to know. Yeah. You know, on top of watching the ports, but also, you know, things happen after that port connection takes place. So if you if you can't exactly watch the port all the time, you can watch for using like heuristics to watch for things that are coming in, sort of like shadow copies being deleted or um, using like quiet commands, um, things like that, because it's got to connect to a C2 server. So once that RDP is open, if you miss that connection, you're going to see the events happening on the endpoint as well. So you take that and be able to analyze that and see what port was open then. If only there was a podcast that talked about preparing for an incident. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, the last one. All right. Next article is from Ars Technica called Exploit Code for Warmable Flaw on Unpatched Windows Devices Published Online. I'd sent out these to a couple people because I saw this now that this uh, SMB Ghost and Eternal Darkness uh, SMB3 flaws have been published to the open internet and anybody can use them. They're going to be in malware. Uh, and they're going to be introduced into malware and they're going to check for this. So if you do have these unpatched in your environment and you're like, well, it's inside, it's not as important if it's, it's facing the internet, yeah, this is going to burn you. This is going to burn you bad. A current trick bot, which I haven't yet analyzed or assessed yet, is using this SMB flaw to jump and create fileless malware uh, infections on domain controllers. And the cool thing about that is that the domain controllers where A, all your creds are, but B, um, obviously you're going to potentially be watching it, logging it, collecting it, SIM and whatnot. But if all you have is this injected into memory or running into memory piece of malware with no persistence, no files on disks, and it's relying on a workstation that got popped to consistently use that connection SMB to the box and just say, here, go load this into memory, um, that's how they persist. So think about the Sony exploit where there was actually nothing uh, on disk. They co-infected all the workstations amongst other workstations, right? It was basically a, a worm scenario. And, and this is what this can create as SMB flaws is very wormable. This would definitely be something, A, patch, but more importantly, I think this really, really bodes to the recommendation of uh, people really need to enable the Windows firewall. At Wildwest Hacking Fest, I talked about it in my talk about preparing for incident. I'll mention it again in the talk next month. Uh, Dave Kennedy mentioned it as well. I think he was uh, a little more adamant in his talk when he when he spoke about it than I was. Um, I think he used a few uh, interesting uh, uh, adverbs uh, because yes, this will this will definitely stop it. Right? Why does workstation workstation SMB need to occur? It just doesn't. So people really need to start uh, managing this and, and block it. And these were patched in Patch Tuesday this week, so it's kind of a current topic. I'd like to throw in there, Mike, one of the questions I get from people a lot when they're talking about endpoint protection and whatever they're using, they're always asking me one of two questions. One, which one's the best one? <laughs> the one that works best for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which one's the best one? And then there's always, well, if it's on there, I can disable 
uh, Windows Firewall and Windows Defender, right? Because that'll conflict with whatever I've installed. And the answer is no, don't do that. Yeah, I rather like Windows Defender. Or wait, Microsoft Defender ATP now, right? They renamed it yet again. Yeah, again. But there's a lot of them that can both control Windows Defender, but also work very well with it. So yeah, to, to kind of add to what you're saying, don't disable those just because you put antivirus on there because they do have benefits that work with Windows specifically. So I just want to throw that out there as kind of a, a general note on top of what you were saying. Yeah, Microsoft's also with the whole Microsoft Defender ATP thing is they're getting ready to make it an option. I'm not sure if the current Windows Defender has been upgraded quite to that point, but you can then buy a subscription to their truly cloud-based ATP. And now Mm. the data will be sent through their thread intel and their backend information with no configuration change to uh, your your system because it already has Windows Defender running on it. And so now there's a hook that allows them to use the the cloud interface, right? So that's a that's something that's kind of uh, important to understand where Microsoft's going with this is to kick it up a notch from an EDR perspective or okay. whatever you call it. And that, that could be advantageous if they're able to make the incoming data intelligent enough to watch for different things that they're seeing on something and then make changes live on everyone's machines if they're seeing something. Yeah, or you get popped and you bring in an IR firm and they find that this is all you have. And they're like, oh, if you buy the subscription improvement to Defender, you can you know, watch for these other things because we can feed this Intel into the Defender stuff. And then Microsoft will let you know if there's any other lingering machines as they come into the office from a laptop or a VPN in or, or whatnot. So there's potentially yeah. a lot of advantages to that. But yeah, SMB, block it, firewall, Windows firewall, please. So let me, let me uh, when we're on this topic... Um, can I ask you, uh, so one of the issues that I have um, when whenever I turn on the Windows firewall logging, and, and I know I'm getting a little bit off topic here, but since we're, since we're talking about the Windows firewall, whenever I turn the Windows lo- the logging on for the Windows firewall, it, it eats up my security logs um, like, like nothing else. Yes, it does. Number one by far. Yeah, it, to, to the point where I've actually seen on some systems where it just rolls over the logs uh, when, you know, otherwise it wouldn't. Do you have any suggestions on that? Uh, you know, as far as I know, you can't, uh, like, whitelist certain uh, programs within the firewall so it doesn't log it. I, I mean, I very well could be wrong, but, um, you know, what, what are your recommendations uh, on, you know, what to do? Sure, there's actually a couple of them. So that's a good point, right? So we tell people, use the Windows firewall, turn it on, which means you're going to log. First and foremost, you're going to have to increase the size of your local logs. Disks are huge today, right? The, the smallest disk I think you can get in a PC or a laptop today is at least 256 gigs, if not 512 to a terabyte. I think anything I've looked at recently has comes to the terabyte drive. That's far more than an OS needs. And I think Brian and I went through this with some, our previous job where they were saying, oh, I don't, I don't, you know, that's, they're going to take up all this space. I'm like, it's five more gigabytes. That's not a lot. What you want to do is look at a couple of things. One, only collect the 5156 events. So there is a, an ID that lets you do a 5158. You don't need those. Um, they're not really going to tell you anything. That would be the first thing. Don't collect. And so be sure that your policy turns those off so you don't see 5158. The other is we want to enable the 5156 or the or the uh, filtering policy to only collect the items that are true, not false. So if you have a port scan from my PC to your PC, you're not going to catch that. Um, if it crosses a firewall, then you have your firewall, right? So that is something where if you do the... Um, 
uh, break down, say, I don't want to just do the positives and the falses. I, want, I just want to do one. So be sure to only do one half of it. That will cut your traffic down in half. But once you do that, that'll get rid of half of the events in your, if you turn on, turn it all on is you got to increase your logs. It, it's got to be at least two gigabytes. If it's a, if it's a domain controller or a server that has a whole lot of traffic, then make it three or four gigabytes. The limits that used to exist on Microsoft no longer do. And then get it to roughly a week or so where it's collecting that at, at a minimum. And usually the workstations, when you turn all this stuff on, we, we talk about in the cheat sheets, you'll get about a week's, even with the Windows firewall turned on with the average user. Obviously, Servers that do a lot of internet traffic will have a lot more information. So you have to really, once you enable it, look at the start date and the end date in your log and increase that log size until you're happy with what's locally being collected so that you can respond. And I, I recently ran into this, right? So uh, mine was not an SMB scenario, but that's actually what they were concerned with. Did they crawl? Did they lateral movement? So I went in and said, hey, is the Windows firewall? It's not on. Uh, bummer. Listen to our last podcast, please. <laughs> um, but the, the, the idea here is you want to make sure that the log's big enough to collect the amount of time. So there was a log that was there, but the amount of time when they first detected the attack to the amount of time they finally said, okay, we're cutting this off and we're, we're contacting um, NCC and we're going to have them investigate it, uh, the logs rolled. So to your point, um, I wanted to look for a lateral movement. The, the date that I was looking for rolled off. So it's real important for you to understand what that time frame is from start to getting IR boots on the ground or virtually onto the machine and make sure your logs locally collect at least that many days. And you just keep through group policy opening up the size of that log uh, until it retains what you want based on that server. And if you have to create multiple GPOs to do so based on the server functions so you're not using, you know, 20 gigabytes, which you should never need that much. I would say two to four is probably all. I don't think I've seen one bigger than that that's that's uh, given me any any cause to say, oh, wow, it needs to be more. But the bigger you are, the more stuff going through your domain controllers or, or web servers, then, yeah, you might have to increase it to much bigger. Um, so hopefully that answers your question. But, yes, you want to make sure you can see that SMB traffic when you go to investigate it. It's kind of the – that's why it fits in here. Yep, definitely. Cool. Thanks. Yep. 51, 56 enabled um don't do the don't do the uh you know the failure oh, sorry <laughs> the failures you do not want but you will not catch port scans between workstations that is something uh i worked with mr carry over there uh, before he sold his company where his tool was uh, doing port scans you load the agent and you run the little tests and I'm like why don't i see these i got the windows firewall on ah because when it's doing a port scan and it's failing a connection i'm not seeing seeing the failures because i don't collect those that's too much traffic but I am seeing the successes. So in the higher noise ratio, look for successes, enable only those successes, only collect 5156 and drop the 5158s and don't enable those in policy. That's my configuration. Yep. Catch them SMB. All right. Next, it's from Trend Micro blog, uh, NetWalker fileless ransomware injected via reflective loading. What is reflective loading? Reflective loading, DLL injection. So this is the topic that we're talking about. This article, for the most part, is here for the purpose of the fact that now articles are mentioning this kind of attack where what they're doing is they're putting this stuff directly into memory or sideloading or injecting because they don't want the stuff living on disk or using the typical infection, you know, dropper, executable, payload 
uh, scenario, they're going to use something like in this case, it was a PowerShell script that loads a DLL into memory. And a lot of people can't find that very easily, meaning their tool sets, their uh, this is something AV will struggle with because it does not look at scripts, generally speaking. Uh, Microsoft does have a PowerShell uh, malicious scripting item. And again, probably something people don't really turn on. I'm sure I'm sure Tyler's probably made many recommendations in, in his uh, engagements. Please turn this on. This is the case where user clicks on something. They use PowerShell. They inject DLL right into memory. And bam, it's ransomware. So it's going to get by a lot of security tools. And that's why they do it. And that's why we're talking about fileless malware. Seemed to be a big wave of fileless related stuff in the last couple of weeks. So I'm like, okay, it's time to, to beat this one up. That's all I got to say about that. Even ransomware is using this fileless technique. It's not really fileless, but we'll get to that. <laughs> Okay, next security boulevard. 80% of hacking-related breaches leverage compromised credentials. It's funny this is a recent article. It actually references through a bunch of hops here, but I ended up referencing the LastPass because LastPass decided to make it important enough to post. But it comes from the Verizon DBIR report. And we had mentioned, and the presentation I'm going to be doing in July has this exact reference, where Microsoft said in their investigations and some research they did that uh, 99% of breaches were due to compromised credentials. And so here's another ca case where Verizon's saying 80%. So again, it's never always or never or, or you know, right? So 80-20 rule. Well, this case, Verizon DBR says 80% and Microsoft's saying almost everything. So maybe the difference is whether or not it's Windows or not. Just another point, we've mentioned this lots of times on this podcast before. And so it's just worth reiterating. Here's yet another study that shows that passwords are are doomed and multi-factor authentication is your only savior here. So yeah, get to uh, getting that implemented. If it's on the internet, facing the internet, and you're just using username and passwords, you have an 80 to 99% chance you're going down. That's how I read these. Yeah, yeah and I, I would, from, you know, from my perspective, you know, being a consultant who's, you know, gets called into lots of different incidents. I'm actually struggling to try to remember one where it, the root cause wasn't somebody, somebody's password was guessed or, or something like that, or they revealed their password through a phishing attack or, or something like that. It always seems to come back to, to passwords, um, especially within like uh, business email compromise attacks, you know, those, those wire transfer fraud things. You know, once the, once the attackers get into the email, 99% of the time, it's because the the victim did not have multi-factor turned on for their, you know, cloud email, Office 365, whatever they're using. And the attackers got in that way by guessing their password or, you know, password reuse attack or you know, something like that. So I'm, I, honestly, I'm surprised that that, that number isn't higher um, than 80%. I, I suspect that if you would break this out into um, uh, different uh, verticals, uh, like manufacturing, technology, all, all that you know, fun stuff, you'd actually see some of those hit you know pretty close to one hundred percent. If I had to Microsoft's guess, Microsoft was ninety nine. I, I kind of lean that it's quite high. Also, the yeah. DBIR. So maybe some of these guys, again, the Verizon people are pretty large corporations. I think I investigated one uh, recently. That's the Blue Mockingbird vulnerability so they got in with an o-day and thus why you know turning on the firewall logs would have been really nice <laughs> it's a problem and i think the the security industry really needs to make this a a very high if not number one priority to get multi-factor on internet-based stuff period i don't have a lot of uh, cases where i can say you shouldn't do that right gaming is very heavy in the space of i don't want to have a, a restriction to starting playing my game uh, it turns out most gaming companies now require or give you a very strong annoyance to use multi-factor because uh, 
stolen creds from one game or so obviously reused for other games that, that the bad guys break in, steal your stuff. So multi-factor is uh, going to help. A lot of games now are actually offering incentives in the game to enable mm. to So I would say 40% of accounts, and I am, I am totally guessing here, but what I saw when I was on gaming, the amount of, of credential logins, um, we were lucky in one case where they they did a uh, uh, a get instead of a post in a, in a password database. So we got to see all the accounts that they attempted to use. And so we said, well, how many of those are in our database? And thinking, you know, is this a breach that we had that we don't know about? Well, it turned out it wasn't. There was less than, I think, 1% or 2%. And it was hundreds of thousands of accounts, by the way. So it was it was messed up. And they finally figured it out and changed their attack and put it incorrectly. And, and then, you know, overwhelmingly, we had failures going through the roof in our events. But that's just a great example where, you know, the fact that we had one or two percent success rate, and if you got millions of accounts, that's that's a win. That's a big win. All right, next topic. Site warning. Okay, first one is, well, the MITRE attack site. Right. So we're talking about fileless malware. If you want a way to say, well, what am I? What do I have? What are my capabilities? What can and can't I do? I'm going to say the first site I think everybody's program should really start looking at and mapping to their defenses to is MITRE ATT&CK. So if you decide after listening to this podcast, you really want to go after fileless malware and all the techniques that are involved, which we're not going to get into the techniques and all, all that. We'll, we'll bore the socks out of everybody but the reversers. That um, the MITRE ATT&CK will give you various techniques and sub-techniques that your tools can or cannot map to or show you areas that you cannot uh, address, that you'll you'll have a gap and say, I need budget. I need to go buy a new EDR. I'm going to go talk to Martin. He sells an EDR. Let's see if his stuff does it. And so the idea here is in the course of fileless, because it is so hard to detect with most tools, like for example, Windows logs, there's no way you can see fileless attacks unless you see the combination of parameters that exist in the command line. So MITRE will have some of these DLL reflections and injections and various other side loads in there. And so go to it and say, do I have a tool? Do I have a way that if this occurs, and then go test it, uh, however you want to go about testing it with the various free tool sets or hire a consultancy, red team, whatever, and say, can I detect this? Because this this area of fileless attacks or the in-memory process injections is more and more popular as the news story showed, and that's why we're having this podcast. And I would say start at MITRE, because as new ones come up, they'll be added to MITRE, and you'll have something to map to, to to show your boss saying, hey, look, we have this big red gap right here. And so that's the idea and why we mentioned them. MITRE attacks. So go to attack.mitre.org. All right, Tyler, you've got one for us. Yeah. So the last couple of months, I've noticed that um, I'm getting asked more and more to either review organizations' uh, run books and playbooks, you know, their their procedures, um, or as I go in and do tabletop exercises, you know, we ask, you know, you know, do you have these procedures? Do you have these playbooks already created? And a lot of organizations don't don't have them. Um, and so the, the website that I, um, I really like uh, is uh, www.incidentresponse.com slash playbooks. It's uh, the incidentresponse.com. It's, it's an organization uh, dedicated to, to IR, but their, um, their playbooks page 
they actually list out, I, I think it's like uh, nine or 10 different um, mock, mocked up playbooks, uh, which give a really good idea for how like, like the flow chart of a playbook should look or, or, or can look, I, I should say, because every organization is going to want to have their playbook look you know, just a little bit differently. But a lot of organizations just don't know where to start. And so I really like this page because it really goes into um, showing you, you know, how it can look, how, you know, that you don't need to have it super detailed, that you can have it this nice, like, flow chart level that steps through all the different um, phases of incident response for for different types of um, incidents. I, I think if you go on there, there's a malware one, there's a phishing one, there's a ransomware one. There's, there's like, like I said, eight or nine different types. So it's a really good resource to at least, you know, start off of. And, and it's all free, too, so which makes it even better. Yeah, this is a fantastic site, Tyler. I was actually asked recently about something for this so thank you for that you just uh, answered my question <laughs> for somebody that i just literally posted on chat no this is this is true brian and i both had to build these out at our previous company you know put them in a wiki and say okay guys follow these steps including the links i think martin was actually involved in this too when we talked about the the urls and the and the websites right which which uh, proxy checking sites can we use to look to see if a URL is any good and see a screenshot? And that's when we kind of went back and forth. The ones with screenshots are really handy because a SOC guy can look at the screenshot and say, oh, that's a login page. That's, that's not good, right? Versus just seeing the information about the URL. Um, so yeah, building this thing, building these playbooks uh, and having resources is awesome for clients from consultancies or even just to recommend. You really should have a really basic phishing playbook. If you're not, uh, we'll talk about that in the uh, last, the last uh, preparing 101. But if you if you don't have some of these things, uh, then how do your people know how to react, right? And so this is a, a great place to get some free stuff. That's that's awesome. Great choice. Yep, exactly. All right, Martin, what do you got? So, I kind of um, there was it was a toss up for me. There's there's a few things I like, but coming from the the last time I was on to this time, you know. Obviously, LogMD I use constantly, but I wanted to throw something out there that's a little bit different. So app.any.run is this website that's basically kind of a an online sandbox. There's a free version. You can pay for it. You can go in there and search for files that you're looking for. So like, say you're looking for Crisis or Kovta or something like that. You could go in and do the public search, see who's run it, and then actually watch the live analysis of the sandbox doing it because it's recorded video and then go through the analysis it has the files in there and it'll show you all the little things that it found you know although you know sandboxes have their place in malware analysis i think that you know if you're doing dynamic versus static there's a lot to be said for what sandboxes can or cannot find or what they can do but i think that for a first step especially for people who don't have a large SOC team can do this on a regular basis this site tends to be one of those cool places where you can just go super quick search for something or even take a hash that you have or a file and throw it in there and have it run the analysis for you. And it's completely free to have that run while you're while, um, on that account and be able to see what it's going to do. Now, I recently tried to use any run. Uh, the only option I had was Windows 7 32-bit. Yeah. Uh, what do they offer free versus for, for the stuff you just talked about watching videos? Is that free? Can we look up that and see the... Videos are free. So you could watch anything from like Windows 7 Pro 32-bit um, and I think that you get the the higher if you pay for it, you get the different levels of operating systems and different things like that. But for free, you can throw a file in there and watch it run on Windows 7 Pro 
uh, I think it's 64 and 32 bit for Windows 7. Uh, you can watch the videos for just about anything they have in their public database, which I think right now is a little over 31,000 different samples that they've run through. And you can search through that. So, like, if I do like a search for crisis, it brings up, you know, what, one, two, three, four, like 20 different results. And you can go and watch that analysis of all 20 of those and kind of get an idea of what it's seeing and kind of make a similarity so that you know what you're looking for when you go and do an analysis on your box. Say, okay, if I take the same sample and i run it what can i see on mine versus theirs so like i have a bare metal machine in here i'll throw it in there and see if i'm seeing something different than what they're seeing on their analysis and kind of go from there so it's a good starting point for people who are trying to figure out how to do this better or kind of get better at kind of identifying things like this now any pros or cons other than crowdstrike buying it and what do they call it now falcon falcon sandbox but the hybrid analysis the old free solution i don't know what they've chopped or yeah. whatnot any anybody still using that i've used it in my classes to compare what we can get on a bare bones analysis versus a uh, cloud analysis to be honest with you like i tend to stick primarily to my bare metal box because i don't have problems that i run into with vms and i find a lot of malware that i'm seeing lately especially within the last three months a lot of the malware that I run, even through like a cuckoo, you'll look at it and you can see it's looking for, you know, that agent, that, that agent up high running on that box. Is this a cuckoo or is this a VM? That is the downside to using things like this, like the virtual sandboxes and things like that. But it, it is a good step off point for, um, you know, even for MSPs that have a small team of guys who are just trying to do this quickly they can throw something in here and kind of walk away from it um, with an idea of what it's, what they're supposed to be seeing. Yeah. It's good for level one, level zero before they escalate it too. Yeah, exactly. Information on it, put it in the ticket. Correct. Like you can see, okay, it's dropping these files or it's doing this and then at least put that into the ticket and then go through and do a further static or or, um, dynamic analysis on bare metal machines. So, right. And then you don't have to build anything. It's already here and it's online. It's free. Yeah. Real convenient. All right. Moving on. Okay. Tools. We've got a couple here. Uh, LogMD Pro. No surprise there. Never heard of it. And Volatility. We got to quit having guests on that happen to also be LogMD Pro users. It's pretty funny. The last several podcasts, all the users have been, all the podcasts have been users. With any luck, that'll that'll eventually become impossible. Let's hope so. Let's hope so, right? And that is by far not the reason people are on there. They're on for their talents. So LogMD Professional, the reason this is on here is we have a running process and module and injection and static analysis for these uh, running processes that we'll talk about for fileless malware. So that's why it's on there for the professional users um, moving forward. We're, we're going to have a lot of expansion there. So if you want to just check your systems for nefarious in, uh, running processes and injections and then static analysis, that, that injection and then get a string dump, uh, that's why we mentioned that tool. And of course, uh, the number one thing that all defer people use when we're dealing with memory is volatility. Uh, we do also take, or I do, I don't know if Brian's doing it currently. If I haven't set in my scripts, I will, but basically take the output and volatility file dumps uh, and data uh, for the net info and, and also the files, DLLs, drivers, and run those through a LogMD uh, professional to look at that stuff as well so we can evaluate all the file dumps and DLLs and drivers for nefarious uh, indicators. And so that's a big tool, right? How do I look at memory? What are the tools available to us in memory? And really, it's pretty limited, honestly. Um, there are some injection-based tools. We'll have another podcast about those later. Uh, volatility, well-known, free. How you dump the memory. Dumping the memory is the easiest part. 
part, uh, analyzing it. Uh, generally, I think you're going to have to go to Nix to get all the Windows profiles. They have not compiled those into the latest Windows binary, unfortunately. I wish they would, but my response back when I asked, it's like, well, you go compile the Python code. And I asked Brian, hey, take a look at this. He says, Python. I asked someone else to look at it. He says, it's Python. <laughs> I'm like, ah. And everybody's comment was, that's why they're not compiling and it's a pain in the ass. So you might be stuck in the Nix arena, but it is the probably the foreboding defer tool for memory-related uh, investigations. Awesome. All right. Uh, Tyler's got something that we should all have in our bookmarks. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the tool that I'm uh, going to talk about is MFTE command, uh, which is one of Eric Zimmerman's tools. Uh, you know, we already talked, you know, a little bit uh, about Eric, um, his uh, Cape tool. Constantly finding, you know, just incredible uses for his tool. I have to tell a little bit of a story here. So um, the reason I, I put this on, uh, not because I don't use it, I obviously use it. I think it's an amazing tool. I it just kind of got reiterated to me this week why you know everybody needs to be using this tool. Um, so with the the training that we were talking about, the the one that I'm doing at B Size Cleveland, one of the things that we do, one of the labs is you take the MFT, the master file table from the compromised Windows system, and you know that that's what you get for the lab, and then it's up to you what you want to do with it. But you know the the whole goal of it is just you know parse the MFT. Go through, see what you could find, find evidence of time stopping, find, you know, create a timeline, figure out, you know, the, the bad stuff that happened and so on. You know, I'm going through this um, and, and to kind of give you a little bit uh, of an idea of, you know, I'm not revealing too much by saying this for anybody who, who's going to take the class, but the, the compromise system was a, a honeypot uh, that I threw up, opened up, you know, some, you know, pretty easy RDP credentials and just waited. And it took less than two days for somebody to, well, actually it took less than a day for somebody to get in and it took less than two days for, for them to actually start doing stuff on, on the system. When I started doing the analysis for for the labs, I found that what I was seeing in the MFT was different than what I was seeing on disk. I couldn't figure out what was going on. Um, and so I went back and, and I actually uh, messaged Eric, Eric Zimmerman, the author, about this. And within minutes, he had replied to me. He's like, yes, I mean, the MFT, you know, I'll look through it and see what we can figure out. Long story short, I was able to figure out, you know, that it was really a user error on my end that in the three minutes from when I took the image of the disk through Azure, and Azure does it really, really fast when you take a snapshot of a, a disk, in the three minutes from you know when that happened to when I ran Cape and it grabbed the MFT and that was the MFT that I was using, the attacker had made multiple changes on the system, and so that's where the differences were coming from. But in my exploration of all these different tools to figure uh, to parse the MFT, what I found was MFTE command, uh, Eric's tool is probably the one that does it the best. He has written it, he has done a lot of analysis on how the master file table actually is set up. A lot of the other tools that are out there, like uh, Analyze MFT, uh, the Python script, a couple other tools that whose names escape me, um, they, they don't, they miss stuff, quite honestly. Um, Eric's is the only tool that I have found that consistently gives me the correct information, the correct timestamps out of the MFT. It tells you whether or not a file was deleted, Analyze MFT doesn't do that. It gives you both the standard information and the file name timestamps. If you can kind of combine that with uh, his other tool, MFT Explorer, I think is its name, it will actually go through and tell you, uh, it will actually interpret some of the timestamps for you to tell you whether or not it thinks that the file was copied over or if it was moved or uh, things like that. So I, I just can't recommend this uh, tool enough. Have you used any of the TZ work tools in a spot? Because, man, those those guys have done a phenomenal job with their forensics uh, disk tools. 
quite honestly, it's been a while since I've used any of the TZ Works tools. When I when I did use them, they were amazing and awesome. But if I remember right, don't they don't you have to pay to to use them if you're not going through a SANS course? Oh yeah, yeah, you definitely have to yeah. pay for them either in small kits or big kits, and it right. can get you know quite quite costly. But they, they right. do some great stuff. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, the, their tools are top notch too. Um, it's just, you know, if I have to choose between using a free tool and a pay for tool, especially for a training course, uh, I'm going to go with the, the free tool because it's, it's more accessible that way. Yep. All right, Martin, you're up. Mind me, man. Mind me. Yeah. The tool that I kind of wanted to throw out there was based on some recent uh, things that I've been messing with and, uh, you know, just doing packet capture analysis and kind of messing with Wireshark. You know, I've been using Wireshark for so long now that, you know, you have your profiles, you have all these different things. But I was trying to figure out if there was something different that I could kind of use that would enable me to kind of look at more inside this packet capture. So what I found was this network miner. And what it does is it's pretty cool. Um, so you can essentially, it will take files that it sees in the packet capture and automatically kind of extracts them and rebuilds them. And then you can, you know, basically right click on those inside the packet capture and calculate the hash and send it up to virus total. But it'll also allow you to do um, analysis on those files that it sees in that packet. So you, it makes it very, very easy to do that. So if you're watching for what something is doing and, and it's reaching out, pulling a file back down through that um, connection, it'll grab that and reconstruct it for you and throw it into this file. Then you just have to go look at it and you see what it is. And then, you know, you can get frame number, I think file name, extension in size, destination host and port that it's using to communicate with, and then like the timestamp for it. And all that information is just kind of added right in there in that line. And it's it's just, it's a very convenient tool. So I've been using that in conjunction with Wireshark because I don't use this as an actual packet capture device, I, I take the packet from Wireshark and I throw it into there and it'll reconstruct that file for me and then I can find whatever it was that pulled down very easily. So you're taking the PCAP. So if a client gave you a PCAP, then you would just run it through this to kind of exactly. parse it much like we do with, with Volatility Up with LogMD, same kind of logic. Exactly. So okay. if a client or, or someone else on the team says, hey, I'm trying to figure out what this is doing. Here's the packet capture. They'll send it to me. I'll run it through this tool. I'll grab the file and I'll be able to see exactly what it's doing and, and, and what port it was reaching out to. And then I can calculate the hash and send it right up to VirusTotal right from there and figure out if anyone else has seen it or what it's doing. So Cool. Nice. By the way, Windows does have a TCP dump tool now. I forget what it's called. Moving on to Malware of the Month. Uh, Drydex. I was kind of disappointed in this eval, but nonetheless, another indicator of why we should have this conversation. So Drydex has now moved to, surprise, a fileless kind of malware. Key detection points here. This is going to be delivered, again, every way, but it's the Sunday. Uh, Word doc, Excel, enable content, email with the URL, Pull down a zip file, you know, pick your pick your delivery method of poison. Um, you, you can get it that way. And the detection scenario is being it's uh, fileless. So if you investigate a box that has fileless malware running, uh, you're going to have a hard time in Drydex's case to look for the old indicators. <laughs> I guess we'll call them old now. Where there's a funky folder with a, a normal Microsoft binary where it's sideloading the bad DLL in two different locations on the disk was kind of uh, Drydex's uh, old way of doing things for, what, many years, Brian? And I think they didn't really change this for quite a a long time and then they would write their persistence on shutdown and then reboot so that if you look for auto runs you wouldn't see them until the box rebooted uh, now they're moving to this 
again, like everybody else, a uh, fileless kind of concept. And whether or not it's truly fileless or not, we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, and the detection point here would be run DLL32 calling the malicious DLL. So this is something that EDR should do well. It unfortunately, in Brian and I's testing, does not. Uh, that run DLL32 normally calls normal Windows DLLs or any kind of application DLLs normally. It's the parameters and the, the DLL and the location that you'd be concerned with here. And then the parent-child relationship in this particular case, which was highly unusual, which I really recommend that people definitely set up an alert for, is parent-child relationship of run DLL32, which then this spawned the SysWow64, not to be confused, with the 32-bit version of run DLL32. And that just is just uncommon and wrong. So when you see that combination of the 64-bit then calling the 32-bit, that should flag an alert. Um, and that's really all that you have from a typical detection. Uh, what's happening in memory, we'll leave that alone for now because that, that opens up a whole can of worms. So I would say, you know, LogMD, obviously, professional will uh, do that for you and see that there's injection going on. So that will detect it. And then any other way, EDR or whatnot. On prevention-wise, again, back to the same old scan email attachments, block them, deny the double-click, all the things we've talked about in the past. You know, block the macro execution or enabling of macros. Uh, block uncategorized websites. Uh, so again, these malware campaigns tend to use popped Joomla Drupal WordPress of the week exploits and, and use those and they're disposable. So when they get patched, they just move on to the next vulnerable server. But these sites are uncategorized, meaning your proxies have no uh, functional categorization. It's not a new site. It's not well known. It's not on the Alexa top million. However, they get to the point where they actually get categorized. Application whitelist user directory blocking. So if you do want to do application whitelisting, watch the user directory, right? Malware starts in user in the user space. So that's a place to monitor or prevent. And then lock down PowerShell. You can sign code. You can make sure people aren't doing execution policy bypasses and such. And of course, your ADR that should catch this kind of attack um, is kind of the prevention items for now. All right. Now, the moment we've all been waiting for, the topic of the day, fileless malware. We don't think so. Let's, let's first go over what fileless malware is. Now, according to these sources, I'm going to go ahead and read these. Cyber Reason says... Unlike file-based attacks, fileless malware does not leverage traditional executable files. Fileless attacks abuse tools built into the operating system to carry out attack. Essentially, Windows is turned against it. Without an executable, there is no signature for antivirus software to detect. This is part of what makes fileless attacks so dangerous. They're able to easily evade antivirus products. So McAfee defines it as fileless malware is a type of malicious software that uses legitimate programs to infect a computer. It does not rely on files and leaves no footprint, making it challenging to detect and remove. And Carbon Black, fileless malware refers to cyber attack techniques that uses existing software, allowed applications, and authorized protocols to carry out malicious activities. Wikipedia, fileless malware is a variant of computer-related malicious software that exists exclusively as a computer memory-based artifact, i.e. in RAM does not write any part of its activity to the computer's hard drive, meaning that it's very resistant to existing anti-computer forensics strategies that incorporate file-based whitelisting, signature detection, hardware verification, pattern analysis, timestamping, etc., and leaves very little by way of evidence that can be used by digital forensics investigators to identify illegitimate activity. As malware of this type is designed to work in memory, its longevity on the system exists only until the system is rebooted. Now, 
and see what Google has to say. <laughs> what is fileless malware? This should be funny. Fileless malware is a variant of computer-related malicious software that exists exclusively as a computer memory-based artifact, i.e. in RAM. So basically the same definition. All right. So here's my definition. Fileless malware uh, is a file. <laughs> So it's a terrible word to use. Uh, but I would say it's a file that as an investigator, when you're looking at the art artifacts of the disk, you can't find it. That doesn't mean it's only in memory. Of course, it's running in memory, which every piece of malware does. So to say it only lives in memory is also wrong because most of the fileless malware that I've looked at uh, lives somewhere. So Coveter is famous for putting itself in the registry, as did WinNTI. There's malware that uses the WMI database to store stuff. There's malware that stores as text file or downloads as text files. So there's a myriad of ways that they can get the, the stuff on there. Their persistence mechanism is sometimes kind of weird. They'll use MSHTA in Coveter's case, phone out to the internet or read the registry and then load the malware. So the file exists somewhere. I don't know that I've run into a non-persistent. I, obviously, I mentioned the TrickBot where the server component is nowhere on disk and they're using the SMB opening to keep pushing it out to the server. Um, which is, you know, fantastically brilliant from that perspective. It makes it very hard to detect for the typical user. Yeah, it's it's kind of like um, when we used to, well, we as in the royal we used to uh, <laughs> share uh, music where you had things like bear share where you'd have this network, right? So they're using SMB to kind of like, okay, are, are you still infected? No, well, here you go, boom. And it was all fileless, really. Yeah, right? in a way. I mean, that's the only one I can think of that's truly fileless. All right. So we can, obviously, we can extract these files from memory. Uh, we can use volatility to dump those. We can use logmd with our injection stuff. If it's if injected, dump it with our minus X feature. So there's a file. It's a matter of us understanding how that file, not necessarily that it's running in memory, but where it's stored how it got onto the system, maybe it's still on the system or hidden on the system somewhere within a database or within a file or called out every time, however it gets there. And maybe it isn't persistent, um, but it's definitely not an always case. I would say well over 80% of the fileless malware that I've investigated is on the disk at some point in some way. Drydex would write down on shutdown. It was considered fileless because when you when you looked on disk, there, there was nothing there. And then when the system went into shutdown, it would write the file to disk from memory. And then it would create the auto run, the system would reboot, the auto run would load it, and then it would delete it off a of disk. And you go looking for it again, it's not there, right? So it all depends. And I, and I think that's important to understand, which is why we're having this podcast, is I think if we refer to fileless malware in different ways, it helps us pick the right tool or set of tools to look for or understand how we might go look for it, hunting for it, or preventing or detecting it. That's my definition. What about what about you guys? You vary anything from anything here since Google kind of agreed with Wikipedia? No, I, I agree with it with what you're saying too. You know, the the last time I saw a true fireless malware that that I can remember is you know 20 years ago with the SQL Slammer uh, attacks, which were going against SQL Server 2000, um, and they would only stay in memory. Um, it went from SQL Server to SQL Server and never wrote to disk. You know, outside of that, you know, th there's, I, I think, 
I, I hate to say this, but but I really do feel that you know the fileless malware term was was really created kind of initially as uh, as fud, Marketing. you know, to kind of scare you know executives to um, you know to buy security software that oh we can detect fileless malware because it's not going to you know do anything to disk. When like Michael, like what you said, you know, it there there is something on disk. You know, it might be in the registry, it might be you know in some other aspect. There, there's going to be some remnants left somewhere that you just need to know where, where to look. It might not be a traditional executable, but th- th- there's something, you know, now, you know, with, with the way that, you know, everything is going uh, with the way that attackers are working with the way that malware is kind of, uh, you know, doing things. I think everything uh, is moving towards having some type of file as out aspect. Um, I mean, you guys talked to Odvar uh, a couple uh, episodes ago, right. Uh, talking about the wall bins, you know, that some of these definitions to me, you know, they're just, that's what they're talking about. Exactly. You know, we're just going to keep seeing more and more of that, whether that's through like the with um, NetWalker and it's uh, reflective DLL loading, whether it's uh, the way that TrickBot works now uh, on, you know, anything past Windows 10 where, you know, it's got that base executable, but then it uh, downloads all of its plugins and its plugins are only in memory. They never touch disk, uh, you know, things like that, where I think we're just going to keep seeing more and more more like that and it just kind of reinforces that you you need to have like what you you both have or all of you actually have, have been preaching forever you know you need to have good logging to to recognize these things you need to you know do live analysis you can't just you know pull the plug out of systems anymore you need to you, you need to grab that memory because that's where you might only find the evidence that you need yeah not always pull the memory i fight that i do it but i fight it <laughs> so yeah so martin do you have any different take on on it did we cover it all um yeah, for the most part, I think we I think you got covered off pretty well. I, Mike, when we were at Wild West Hacking Fest, you know, Coldwater did this keynote speaker, and one of the things that was stated there, and I think that it kind of applies to this, is that these keywords, although we we kind of treat them as as buzzwords like cyber and things like that, you know, and even though we look at these and we kind of make fun of them, we kind of laugh when people use these words. The fact is, is that the industry outside of the security industry uses these terms. And professionals like CISOs and CFOs and CTOs, they're all paying attention to these keywords because this is what they're basing, what they're making decisions on. And so when you see the term fileless, although we know as we're doing analysis that what that term is kind of agreed FUD, these terms need to be used by our industry simply because this is what they're listening to. This is what they want to hear. And this is what they're reacting to. So although we don't feel like it's fileless, I feel like using the term still makes sense in their industry, uh, you know, in, in that level where, you know, down below in the trenches, we can use whatever term we feel necessary. But agreed, you know, I, I've done analysis on Drydex and, and crisis and all these things where you're seeing, you know, it's data. Data is going into somewhere, so it has to be a file. It has to have something somewhere, and you should be able to use either heuristics or something to watch for this stuff. And so, I feel like using that term is important in some cases. And you know, when you're back at the desk and you're sitting with your team, use something else. Yeah, I like what you said because if you want to simplify it for management, you got to say something that you know is written in crayons, so to speak. And fileless malware allows them to go back to work and you know fill with literally come up to us and say, can we detect fileless malware? And that would be something he would say, but he's very technical, so he would actually get into the details of it. But that does allow that conversation to occur. But you will not find, 
you know, a technique ID or sub-technique ID of fileless malware and MITRE attack. You know, yeah, there's a translation that must occur. Maybe the simplification helps products and, and marketing and and management to grasp the concept. But uh, I think that was a great description, Martin. All right, Betcher, you want to read that? Number three. Okay. Better way to define fileless malware and why? I've preached this a couple times at talks. And the reason I look at it this way, when I, when I dealt with WinNTI back in 2012 and they were dropping stuff in the registry, my first case of what I would call fileless malware, really, there, were, there was no fileless malware being discussed. Nowhere, anywhere, foreign manner, right? Only APT, I guess, used it, I suppose, and maybe the, maybe the three-letter agencies. I look at it as if I'm investigating something or I see a certain behavior, Covter, Drydex, whatever, that to me, malware has to reside, live in some way, somewhere, or is utilizing some functionality on the box, right? So I look at it as fileless malware can be broken down into uh, several categories. Memware, meaning it's in memory only, much like the trick bot infecting the domain controller where they used SMB and in, in, in memory it went, right? The uh, nworm, mworm, or, or mworm, then nworm as the current iterations are. Regware, meaning the payload like Covter would live in, in HKEY user software, some funny registry key where the payload's encrypted and obfuscated, however they do it. It's in there, but it's this ginormous payload where it hides. WMIware, I've stuffed scripting and or payloads into the WMI database, totally doable. PowerShellware, I'm using a PowerShell script, right? A lot of AVs can't even read scripts, so they use PowerShell or text files that get converted to PowerShell scripts and execute that way because you have all of .NET available to you through PowerShell. Uh, wormware, which would cover what uh, Tyler talked about, so I added it here because it's the wormability of SMB or the type of attacks where this stuff just worms around the environment. Um, right? And they're important, uh, of course, then I added the lolbin, lolbass based on what he said and not of our, our talk with him, is that they're living off the land, right? They're using RunDLL32, RegServe32, uh, Control Panel applets. Uh, we've seen all those. And of course, there's just malware. There's the typical case of malware. Now, this is important when we write reports. We're going to have a podcast on reports and, and uh, invite some people on to talk about that because I struggle with how reversers write reports and how little information I can get out of it as a IR person and as a defense person writing Splunk queries or whatever. These designations I just listed gives us as investigators and defenders and people who are managing socks, an understanding of where do I need to look for this stuff? You know, can I go out and look at my environment or do I have a piece of technology that allows me to say, do I see funky PowerShell? Do I see obfuscation, Daniel Bohannon stuff occurring in my environment? Do I see large base 64 happening in my environment? Uh, can I go looking for it if I'm on a threat hunt, right? Can Is there a way I can go look at the WMI database and look for WMIware or the execution of WMI being the thing that calls the malware to, to load? Can I look through the registry for large payloads or large scripting or things like that? Uh, do I have a way to scan memory and look for weird signs of injections or running processes or things that uh, are loaded with DLL side loading and whatnot. Do I can I go look for low bins and low bass and and of course typical malware. So I think by coming up with these definitions, it helps us define how we're going to go investigate it and categorize a family of malware like Covter. I would I would categorize Covter pretty heavily as Regware because every Covter I've seen in the last what, probably five years, Brian, yep. has all been registry-based storage of scripts and payloads. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that means I'm going to, 
if I'm getting hit by Covter a lot, or I have an indication, I see an MSHTA execution, I'm like, that sure looks like Covter. And a matter of fact, I think Brian and I had this conversation once. He was like, I'm not seeing anything. Go look in the registry. You'll find it. Look for something funky. That it helps us think into the frame of the malware. And so if the industry adopts that and says, oh, this malware's regware, bam, I immediately know I've got to go look for large payloads or scripts or PowerShell inside the registry and they're hiding it there or WMIware, right? It helps us frame how we think, what tools we might use, what approaches we might take and and how to go about investigating it, et cetera. So that's why I think we need a better way of defining this. And it, I think it really help our jobs, help us write reports, help us pick the right tools, et cetera. I mean, the, the way that you're describing it, it almost sounds like, you know, what we need is, you know, kind of what MITRE ATT&CK did for the attack techniques and, you know, TTPs there that we need to have, you know, so, some similar standardized description language um, for, for malware Go, going into, you know, the, the different things. And, and I know that's kind of a, a not controversial topic, but a, a sore topic with some people. I know that there have been a number of attempted naming conventions for, for malware, most of which all of, all of which have failed, I think. <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe that is, you know, something that, that needs to be done. Or I, I think you you bring up a really good point um, about, you know, being able to, uh, you know, put this into or translate this into kind of like the report writing language so that, you know, whoever is reading it, whatever that audience is, whether it's technical or executive, managerial, you know, legal, whoever, they can understand what that is. And having that standardized language for that is really important. Um, as a side note, I'm really looking forward to that, you know, uh, episode on uh, the report writing because that's, you know, another thing that needs done. Yeah, because think about it. If I'm an I fought when NTI in gaming. And so if I'm an adversary looking to gain access, I'm, I'm going to want to know, right? This is kind of what Carlos Perez talks about when he's attacking Sysmon. I want to know what tools you're using so I can figure out how to avoid them, bypass them, whatever, right? In his case, he's got reg right. tweaks that will turn off. I mean, Sysmon's pretty easy to disable. I, and as Brian knows, I played with some EDRs and found that I could turn them off, you know, one-on-one kind of like, really? They didn't think to protect against this? And, and had a conversation with Devin Kerr about it. Like, oh yeah, that's a problem. We all know about it. I'm like, oh, you're kidding me. So I didn't scream too loud because it turns out it's already known. So if I know and I've mapped my target to the type of tech, and I know that these types of tech... Right. So one of the things we discovered in the one NTI attack was they would, and this is not uncommon, but uh, this is just something we, we found is why didn't Tripwire find these attacks? We ran Tripwire everybody everywhere. Why aren't they seeing these things? Because file sampling or file integrity monitoring has to take a sample every X seconds, roughly 10 seconds. So if I can download a payload, drop a payload, execute a payload and delete the payload, then the file integrity software doesn't see the actual file occurring. And this is going back to the MFT thing where, well, the MFT would record all that stuff because it actually happened and it's an index of what happened on the disk, right? So that's a great example of your tool. Um, and so I would map that, red teamers, same thing, and say, ah, okay, I'm going to use memware to infect them or regware because they have nothing that's going to stop that or be able to detect that or search for that. And so from my perspective as an incident responder thinking like, how would I map my attacks to an environment? I'd look to see if you have these capabilities. Do they have really good PowerShell logging? Yep. Okay, I'm not going to go after that route. I mean, I've heard talks where some of the, the bigger consultancies have said, oh, their clients have gotten so good at PowerShell logging, I just can't use that as a as a way in anymore, right, from a red teamer. And, and so PowerShell where would be out, right? So it allows us to kind of look not only, I think, from an attack perspective, but also in their development of malware, but our 
how do we go about and say, all right, I want a, I want a way to detect these various areas. I want a way in the future to potentially prevent them or alert on them. I want a way to threat hunt for them. And as an incident responder, I have to go in and find them and potentially remediate them. And so break, breaking this up allows us to build tool suites, tool sets, and, and really focus. So that's that's why I think you can blame the Chinese for making me think this way, because I think they really altered a lot of the way I think, uh, watching what they did. You know, they altered service uh, image paths. The service is the same service. They just pointed it to a different location. Who who does that, right? So I would call that a form of regware uh, because they stored the payload in the registry in this case. So double whammy, right? The service is also in the registry. So yeah, I, I think it, it's important for us to start thinking in these terms, using these terms in the malware descriptions, uh, and just generically calling these reports file lists. You start reading through them, you're like, Oh, it says right there, it reads H key current user S, uh, software SDA underneath that. These values, here's the PowerShell script, here's the payload. And then, you know, if they just said, look, this is fileless malware, but it uses a memware component. Oh, you know, I know exactly what I'm looking for or where I'm looking for it. My take. It, exactly. No, I, I absolutely agree with you. E- even, you know, with that, you know, even if you don't have those descriptions, you know, just knowing that these descriptions exist or, you know, this is how fileless malware work, because let's face it, you know, fileless malware has it almost I almost feel like it's like an amorphous blob term where there everybody just keeps throwing more and more into it if it's not the traditional, you know, malware in a file on a system. So it could be, you know, you, you've got a list of what, eight, uh, seven or eight things here of what it could be. I'm sure that, you know, within the next year, we're going to see more things kind of lumped into it. it but it, it does change the way that we need uh, to think about doing um, incident response, uh, threat hunting, you know, we, we can't just, you know, look at the file system, you know, we, we've got to um, do all the other analysis, uh, you know, look at memory, look at uh, the registry, um, you know, look for these clues everywhere, you know, uh, WMI, PowerShell, you know, all, all that stuff, you know, it, it's, it means that we can't just rely on, you know, one technique, especially if we're walking onto a system that we, we know is compromised, but we don't know how. We, we've got to check all these places. Yeah, based on that, I just added uh, .netware and Brian oh, corrected yeah. me. Compileware, right? So you got this compile on the fly .cs .command line files yep. that then get compiled with CSC, et cetera, and compile on the fly, right? So, yeah, I, it will consistently change. I agree with you there. Yep. And so will our investigation and so will our, our tool sets and, and so will our way of, of looking at it, right? So, yeah, yeah, they're going to keep changing. So we might as well sub-label these things, right? Sub-technique, much like MITRE's doing, to be able to break down malware into, or file as malware into better categories. I, I really think this feeds better for reports. It explains to a, I don't know, you're a consultant, I'm a consultant, I work for NCC Group, you work for Trusted Sec, that if I'm explaining this to a client, so it's file as malware, but... You know, you can catch this by doing this. You have a tool for this. I saw that you have, you know, big fix. That means you can use big fix to look for that. Or you turn on command line uh, process logging and you can see the .NET compiling. You might want to investigate that and whitelist out your normals. Or you can see the lull bins executing. Look at the parameters and, and filter those down. Ah, you see a control panel applet. Well, where is the control panel applet being loaded from? And, you know, look at those, right? So... I, I think it would really help if we, as an industry and a malware analysis and training, I know I will mention this in all my trainings now, it's becoming way too prevalent in regards to how attackers are, are morphing. And of course, it's killing the tools in regards to, and that's why they're doing it, right? EDR gets better, they get better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think it helps when we do incident response or, you know, threat hunting is when somebody says, oh, this is wormware. 
I immediately am thinking, okay, I'm looking for lateral movement. I'm looking for 4624s, you know, things like that. Right. Or get the, get the network, get the PCAPs out. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's what I mean. We, when we read these terms, immediately start thinking in a different way in that we can immediately associate a tool or a technique of investigation as opposed to phallus malware. Well, what kind of phallus malware is it? Because I can tell you that just investigating memory images won't find where this stuff is stored necessarily. Once it's in memory, a lot of the stuff that got it there isn't necessarily in memory. And so to know that it came from a registry key at location XYZ, you may completely miss from the mem dump. And so that's that's why uh, we really have to kind of understand where do we go looking for this stuff um, and how fast we can respond to, right? It's all about time, time-based security. Faster we can find it, faster we can stop it, faster we can eradicate it, faster we can recover. Yeah. And, you know, th- this has got me thinking too, you know, along those lines, you know, we keep saying, you know, how we can go and find it and how we can um, detect it and, and all that. But what it, what it comes down to too is, you know, I, I'm not, hopefully I don't take this the wrong way, but, you know, we, we've been in security for a while, right? And so we, we, we've been in the industry for a long time. And when when I first started in the industry versus now, you you have a lot more people coming into the industry now, you know, a lot more, you know, people starting out, you know, there's college programs, you know, and, and so, you know, it, it's kind of our responsibility as well to kind of pass that knowledge down um, to everybody who's coming in and, you know, being able to, you know, define these things a little bit better than this amorphous, um, you know, phylus malware concept that I think that will also help us kind of teach it moving forward. Because, you know, if, if I just tell, you know, a, an intern or, you know, a junior forensic analyst say, go look for phylus malware, that's, you know, probably too much of a, you know, generic concept for them to do. But if I tell them, all right, well, look, you know, I want you to look for, you know, let's just call it WMIware, you know, then they can focus, all right, I need to look for, you know, evidence of WMI, you know, execution, where is that stored? How is that logged? You know, all that stuff. And so it helps them focus a little bit more and expand their knowledge and experience and, you know, get them to be able to do what, what they need to do, you know, moving forward. All right. So final thoughts on this fileless malware? <clears throat> Well, question for you, Tyler. Knowing it's phylist, has it changed your approach of evaluation? I know Brian and I, again, driven by the Chinese originally, but Brian and I developed capabilities into LogMD because of these techniques that I just mentioned. We specifically look at interesting artifacts in PowerShell. We specifically look at low bin, low bass. We have a list of things that we point out and say, oh, interesting thing. We look for WMI, we look for reg, and now we're looking at memware, right? So we specifically, because of these behavior changes, change the way our tool works. It definitely changes the way my evaluation of malware changed, right? Because I am I want to eliminate that these don't exist. Is it using funky PowerShell? Nope. Okay. I, I can put that on the side burner. Is it using WMI in any way? Oh, it's, look at that. It's using WMI to launch service host, right? So it, it helps me or has changed the way I look at malware based on what I'm seeing and then tells me where to look. If I see a piece of Covter and I see an MSHTA and I see an HK current user, ah, Go look in the registry. For me, it definitely has changed the way I evaluate malware. Uh, what have you done or what have you seen? Yeah, so it, it has absolutely done that for me as well. You know, um, 
I mean, you've got to do that anyways in uh, in security because, you know, security changes every day. You need to kind of be able to roll with the punches. But, you know, the, with specifically the file fileless stuff along the lines of, of malware analysis, it you know, it, it's kind of caused me to have to expand what I would normally do in, in a malware analysis. You, you can't just necessarily throw a uh, executable into a sandbox anymore to, to analyze something or throw it into a debugger. You know, there, there are other things that you have to do. You have to learn new techniques on uh, deobfuscation and decoding, depending on, on uh, how it is. Uh, one of the samples in, in my malware analysis class that I teach is a, is a Kafter sample. And, you know, we, we, we go from, you know, and this is one of the samples where it actually did, it does start with a uh, actual file, but, um, you know, we have to step through, all right, well, you've got this file, what did it do? And, you know, you don't, you don't see what anything that that file does because its only purpose is to write to the uh, registry uh, and that's it. Um, and then, you know, you, we, you know, take the next step, right? Well, here's the, where it wrote to in the registry and you see like these huge registry uh, encoded things, you know, now we need to try to decode those and, and so on. And so, you know, it's definitely changed the, the way that I, I look at these things. Um, and I don't want to sound like I had, you know, blinders on or was very, you know, tunnel vision focused on this, but, you know, you kind of, at times, for lack of a better term, step out of your comfort zone and start looking in places where you either normally haven't looked before or, you know, learn how to do that because the attackers, they're learning how to do that. You know, every day, you know, they figure out a new technique. Um, and in fact, one of the uh, one of the guys at TrustedSec just figured out a way to use the Windows telemetry to maintain persistence on a system. And so, you know, I, I've never looked at the, as far as I know, you know, unless there was something obvious that popped out, I've never looked at, you know, some specific telemetry files for persistence of, of malware. And so, you know, now I'm thinking, oh, crap, now I, I need to go and, and start learning how to do that and, and figure that out. So, yeah, just, you know, a lots of different ways you have to take. And I, I think it also um, it, it kind of increases the amount of time that it takes to to look at these things because you want to make sure you're covering all the bases. Um, you know, you can't just say, well, it's going to you know take me X amount of time to look at something because last week it, I only had to look at five things. And, and this week I have to look at, you know, eight for to make sure that, you know, everything is being covered and I'm finding everything that I need to. Yeah. And, you know, as we talk, we've added several to this list, but Brian just added bootware. Yeah. Sony is a perfect example of bootware, right? You can, and Windows is terrible at this, TZ Works. I actually worked with David at TZ Works on this. I had gotten a, a copy of one of these bootwares. So what they do is they're changing the booting before Windows. So if you were to re-image Windows, the system still gets infected because they're outside the boot partition of Windows that when the disk comes up and it says, oh, and write this to that thing over there. Then when Windows comes up, it drops the file in there and then Windows loads it. And that's how Sony was taken out when the system's rebooted. Wham, you know, FDisk format reinstall in yep. mass. So that this particular piece scares me. And I know TZ Works now has a, a tool for this. And it's very hard to detect. You can boot a Windows box on Linux and, and look for the differences of the partition. And so, yeah, you can boot on Linux and you can look at the partition makeup to see if the machine you're looking at has any differences than a typical machine from your gold image to see if someone's messed with this because they're going to put in this little slice of bootware. And yeah, it's, it's scary stuff, right? So we constantly have to evolve. And so it definitely changes our way of valuing malware or doing an incident for sure. Oh, just threat hunting. I think this also helps us a lot in threat hunting. What do you mean by that? Uh, how it so I, I you know I've, I've been to many sans people talking to sans and, and other cons where they say threat hunting is the idea of coming up with a hypothesis and going out and and looking for signs of that hypothesis. And I'm like, yeah, that's not how you start threat hunting. You should start threat hunting by looking for things that are known that malware does consistently 
and a lot of meaning 80-20 rule, right? I'm going to look for, I want to build my program on the 80% and then I'm going to work in that last 20% because the last 5% is going to be really, really, really hard. And I, I'm going to look at, okay, do I have any weird executions in C users? Like 80 plus percent of malware starts in C users. So let's go look at any, for any binaries in the root of app data, app data local or app data roaming, right? Or is there any binaries in, in percent temp or C windows temp that are odd? I'm, I'm going to look for things I know that malware tends to do very heavily. Uh, C program data, all users. Is there a binary in the root there? That's just, that's just wrong, right? I, I can eliminate that I know I don't have these things. I can look at auto runs and eliminate I don't have any funky auto runs. I can look at uh, memory. Do I see any signs of injection? I can look at registry. Do I have any large payloads that show scripting or, or potentially have payloads hidden in them because there's not very many large reg keys? Uh, I can look at the WMI database, right? So I'm eliminating certain things I know that are well known. Even some of these are definitely on the higher level, more APT-ish or more higher end uh, complicated malware and say, I know I don't have these things and I can build my program. Then once I get really good at that repeatable part, then I would start making these hypotheses and going forward. So I think this helps address threat hunting and that I can say, do you have a way to look at low bin, low bass? Uh, Carlos, no, Robert, Roberto and Devin Kerr, Roberto Rodriguez and Devin Kerr did a talk at whatever con it was um, that I saw them at where they talked about a threat hunt they did and they went out and they said, okay, I dubbed three C's and I asked them, are you cool with me calling it this? They're like, yeah, fine. And so I called the three C's now. Well, you got to ask permission. They might have been trying to come up with a term, so I don't want to piss anybody off, right? They're colleagues. <laughs> and he's like, you're laughing because you understand. Yep, yep. And so they talked about how they went out looking for this run DLL32 space and parameters. And they found that configuration on a lot of the machines had not had process command line logging turned on. And so they could not go looking for these lull bins of run DLL32 because there was a configuration flaw. And so they said, look, you need to look at this stuff. When you're threat hunting, there's nothing worse than coming back saying I didn't find anything. Did you, did you really not find anything or is your configuration so bad you couldn't find anything? And there's nothing worse than telling your boss after three months of this program that, yeah, we haven't found anything yet. There, there has to be an outcome of it that says, I didn't find anything because our configurations blow. Brian and I know all too much of this in going through acquisitions where, hey, you know, are you ready for an incident response scenario? No, you don't have any logging turned on for us to investigate anything, right? We have the CDR agent and we can pull stuff down, but if it isn't turned on, it's not going to be there, as I know you've found. So uh, for us from threat hunting, this helps us threat hunt. This helps us look for various categories of types of malware to say, well, I, n I can't really look for wormware unless I'm looking in memory. So wormware, but it's different because of the way it spreads versus just you know, something being injected in the memory. But I can I can definitely come up with potential ways to look for these various categories and say, I know I don't have any of this stuff. And I think that's powerful because then you can map it to MITRE ATT&CK or at least, you know, try to map it up into MITRE ATT&CK in some way and, and color code it, either shades of blue or green, yellow, red, gray, or however you want to color code your, your MITRE ATT&CK matrix. That's why I think it helps with red hunting. What, what I find interesting is that um, it really also just kind of comes back to, you know, everything that you and Brian have been saying for, for you, for as long as I've known you guys, um, that, you know, you need to turn on logging. You need to have this visibility in both your network and your hosts, your endpoints, or else you're not going to find these things. You know, we, we, we could talk till, till we're uh, blue in the face about, you know, coming up with new terms for uh, fileless malware or that we need to go and look for it and all that. But until you have that visibility in, in place, you're, you're not going to see it. Um, and, you know, that's the, really the first step to, to all of this. Yes, I, I can believe. And, and Martin did have an emergency, so we lost him. So we'll have him back to harass him on another cast. 
I also think if you're building, I'm seeing a lot more of this where I'm getting asked questions. I actually have an engagement I'm going on in a, in a short while where I'm going to help look at what people are alerting on and make recommendations on what to alert more. And I'm going to guess I'm going to find they're not collecting some data so they can't alert on what they don't have. So I'm going to look at that. Mm-hmm. But I also think if you do, let's say you do have a tool. Um, I'll pick on Big Fix right, just as one. Or LogMD. I mean, right? I don't want to be self-serving. This is an educational podcast. I don't care what tool you use. Just find a way to do it. Uh, free or paid or otherwise. But if I can find a way to alert on something that one of my tools does, then maybe not what is intended to. I mean, Big Fix is a patch management, configuration management tool. The fact that it's the most awesome incident response, triage, hunting remediation tool on the planet that nobody knows about. And that's what I mean by nobody knows about. It's just an example of, of what you can do, right? Take whatever you have and say, is there a way I can alert on, does my tool have a way to check on large reg keys? You know, maybe I can run LogMD once a month or once a week on my, my, my systems and see if there's any large keys over 20K or 30K or 50K because you're going to have a very low hit rate on those. And, and alert on those if there are, all right? Run it, run it as a process, whether you use Arthur and push it out in the Windows environment, schedule task it, push it with SSCM, Big Fix, however you want to do it. Or can Big Fix tell me there's any keys greater than X amount, which there is a function, a capability in Big Fix to do that. I don't know if you could script something with PowerShell and push it out with SSCM, probably could. Can we detect on these kinds of things Either A, not necessarily as they're happening real time, good luck with that. Uh, within an hour is perfectly acceptable to me. If you can get down, if you can get to it detecting a, a big event within an hour, you're in good shape. Uh, and then starting your response. Uh, because unfortunately, how many days is the average down to 160 or something down from 270? Still, an hour would be one to bar. Still a lot. Yeah, it's still too much. I, I think this will help us also building potential SOC and and IR and, and overall security alerting on these kinds of malwares. Um, so I think there's a lot of benefit by by breaking these down to say, if I do start logging this stuff and turning it on or collecting it from whatever tool suite, can I create an alert for WMIware? Can I create an alert on RegWare, right? And and so that you can start thinking about in those manners and you might catch some of these higher end attacks as they hit you and they're dropping their payloads on patient zero, one, three, five, ten, or whatever. Um, so I think there's a lot of benefit in breaking that down for, that's my take. No, you're, you're right. And with what you were saying too, about using, you know, big fix or, you know, whatever you have, you know, sometimes what, what, I, what I found, you know, is on some of these engagements, you have to get a little creative because, you know, I'll go onto a client site and they don't have EDR. They have antivirus that is, hasn't been updated in, you know, months. Um, and, and so you got to have to get a little creative. So you start asking questions like, well, do you have security software? Well, no, we don't have that. Um, well, do you, how do you do IT management? Oh, well, we use big fix. I'm like, perfect. You know, that's what we're going to use to, to use all this. And so you can use these um, other tools to, you know, search for the file smell or search for, to do, you know, threat hunting and incident response and all that stuff with it. And it really just comes back to, you know, what are, what are his capabilities? Um, and can you use them creatively to to do what you need? And, you know, again, it, it it kind of factors back into, you know, you need to know what you're looking for, which, you know, again, follows malware, not not the best uh, term in the world. But yeah, look um, for nothing. You know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's kind exactly. of how it, it comes across to me. It's look for nothing. Hey, my job's done. I win. <laughs> I look for nothing. <laughs> and you found it. And you found yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know nothing. I know nothing. <laughs> Sergeant Schultz for the win. All right. Well, with that, I guess we're done here. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. Well, I want to thank Martin and Tyler for joining us. 
thank you for coming on, sharing your knowledge and experience uh, Absolutely. about topics, files, malware, articles, tools, things we talk about in the IR space. We'll have you back maybe another, what, two years or however long it's been. <laughs> well, Cape. Hey, yeah. you know what? I'm always willing to come on. You guys are, I think, the only uh, one of the only security podcasts I listen to. So um, I'm I love listening to you guys and uh, always willing to help out wherever I can. Yeah, we appreciate it, and obviously, you know, we we offer our assistance to your training as well. And don't forget, he's got training coming up here. Yep. And you and I do need to get together. We I got a great venue here in Austin. Traveling obviously is a bit of a challenge right now, but I have a great yeah. venue to sit about. 25, 30 people, and you and I could do a four-dayer, and we can do two days of discovery and two days of analysis. would be a phenomenal week for somebody wanting to learn stuff. Oh, I agree. So something to look at. But, yeah, I think a CAPE uh, podcast would be uh, definitely something uh, we could talk about because I'm, I'm liking the, the idea of what CAPE can do for a central way to launch a bunch of tools, Eric's, ours, everybody else's, and build upon that, right? Carry it around on a USB drive, plug it in, launch the CAPE GUI or command line script they created, and woof launch all the things. Well, that's another another topic for another podcast. But yes, thank you, Tyler. Thank you, uh, ghosted uh, Martin, who had an emergency. <laughs> yeah, I can still still see his room, Yeah, but uh, he's gone. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, he sent me a, all right. a, a chat on the side. To listeners, if you like this podcast, make sure you uh, download a podcast catcher. I use Dog Catcher. Download it and have these podcasts, when they are released, downloaded to your phone automatically to... Uh, be displayed into your earbuds and into your brain every I have a question for you. Way. Is dog catcher rough to use? It is. I think of a witty. <laughs> <laughs> that was too good to pass up. <laughs> and yes, it is the Incident Response Podcast, no longer breaking down security podcast. So be sure to update your your app your app to point to the right place now. All right. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.